0: Welcome to Syntalk. The Syntalkers around the table today discuss the outer limits of adaptation. We'll think about the limits of adaptation in various kinds of social, political, linguistic and ecological systems. Is economics easier to change than culture or politics? How do languages adapt? Why are there different languages and not one universal one? Can entire populations and ecosystems adapt and co-evolve? What makes certain species more adaptable? How do constraints of individual parts influence group dynamics and adaptation? What might a warmer world be like? Does one species' superior adaptation imperil the others? And what is the very long-term future of adaptation? We are pleased and privileged to have three SYN Talkers with us here today. Dr. Samar Hussain, is a linguist and is based at IIT Delhi. He is interested in how humans comprehend and process languages. Professor Shankaran Krishna, he teaches politics at the University of Hawaii, he is interested in all things India. And Dr. Samrat Pawar, he is a theoretical ecologist and is from Imperial College London, he is interested in how biological systems respond to environmental changes. So uh, why don't we set the ball rolling with you, Samrat, um, because maybe this whole notion of adaptation is closer to you from a discipline perspective. Um, is there a way of saying something about it generally um, on what? how do you measure whether something is adapting well? How do you measure fitness? How do you measure whether a species or a system or an organism is in a host environment or somewhere far away from it? Um, how does one think of this schematically? What what is what is your take on this?
1: I guess um, classically, uh, the the meaning of uh, adaptation has been best understood and formalized for single populations, starting with Darwin. Mm-hmm. And um, we one would consider a population to be adapting if it's always a relative measure relative to some time in the past, whether it is moving closer to what would be uh, the optimal fitness. It's its best ability to reproduce its own type.
0: But how does one know what is best fitness? Uh, that's a good
1: question and that's a big question. Um, in an environment that's completely fixed, mm-hmm. we can, uh, and knowing what are the spectrum of possibilities for a given population, we can calculate even mathematically what would be the, the state that would have the highest fitness for that fixed environment and then we can uh, ask how far is this population from that state. There's a classical view of adaptation in, in, in natural selection.
0: So what, what kind of a measure is that? This is some kind of reproduction ability? Yes, yeah, so
1: the, uh, the combination of uh, ability to stay alive and reproduce. So a lifetime reproductive fitness is what people consider to be uh, the gold standard. Of,
0: of. So this would be something like how many offsprings one can yeah. or
1: a species could end so up either having? Either you live short and produce a lot or you live long and produce a few and those both can result in Mathematically a, be equivalent. the same kind yeah. of measure. So that's the case of single populations.
0: And, and obviously change is a constant as the cliche goes, yes. so, um, and, and you know, any change is I mean, you are somebody else's environment and so yeah. on. And that's, that's always the Absolutely. case. So yeah. is there a, is there, are there, are there periods in time when change is more rapid than otherwise? Are there periods in time when things are relatively more steady and punctuated?
1: Yeah. So there's a few things that happen with populations that are adapting the, a well adapted population can become unadapted just because of, uh, mutations. Mm-hmm. And then the environment itself, uh, as you said, is a, this change is a constant and that has been a massive uh, issue with classical population genetics is dealing with the fact that uh, fitness, the fitness landscape, so to speak, is not fixed. It changes. And the most interesting part, at least for me, is that uh, actually the adaptive landscape for a population usually entails other populations. And when other populations are changing, then your adaptive landscape is constantly changing. So the changing uh, fitness landscape is a massive uh, theoretical and also empirical challenge for, for biologists to be able to predict how long an adaptive strategy will last and uh, yeah, and how to predict what would be a good adaptive strategy in the future. And, and
0: when you think of this analytically, at least at the theoretical level, which you must be doing all the time, do you, are you able to separate out the species from the ecosystem or or how how different is that because you know there must be a shadow of the ecosystem on the species per se isn't there
1: yeah so by definition what i guess most people have heard of the the idea of a niche Mm -hmm. And uh, a niche really is a joint property of the organism's properties and the environment that it is living in. So you cannot really separate an organism from its environment when you want to understand or define fitness or adaptation.
0: So any kind of fitness measure as as a consequence is also some kind of a commentary on the environment where that implicitly species is implicitly at itself. least
1: implicitly so you can always uh, define a population's properties and implicitly tells you what the environment it, it is adapted to is so like. no
0: species is fit to a certain measure per se but it's always in context
1: yeah, always in context
0: yeah. does this make some sense to you summer i mean how do you think of now language is obviously a different beast uh, the but what what does it mean for languages to
2: adapt Yeah, I think I just sort of one of the things that struck me when uh, Samrat was talking about the, the idea of measurement, right? How do you define or measure adaptability in this, in the context of language, one way that people have talked about uh, measuring, um, adaptation, so to say, right? So is uh, this idea of efficiency, right? Or if you would like to think of language from an evolutionary perspective, how did language come about, right? So they think of language as something that uh, has evolved or has been selected, so to say, right? And for what function, the function in this context would be communication. So, It has a huge role to play for the survival of the species. If you have certain kinds of abilities where you can transfer certain information. And once you start talking about communication, then you can think about efficiency in that context. How efficiently do you transfer that information? Or how efficiently do you communicate?
0: So this is efficiency of what? This is efficiency of the way you process something that you receive? This is Right, a- so
2: efficiency in both terms. That's a very good point, actually. So on the one hand, when we talk about adaptation or adaptability, you can think of efficiency of information transfer from the production side or the speaker's side. Right. So how? Uh, uh, so this there's a huge uh, and this. How how do you even measure something like that? Right. So there's a very nice sort of uh, sort of um, legacy out there coming from Shannon information theory, where uh, you know. The, and people have used this in the in the context of signal processing and other. There's con- some kind of a related notion to entropy. Yes, exactly. Precisely. Mm. So entropy, conditional entropy, surprisal, and uh, rights have been extensively been explored in the context of um, language processing, production, and so on, and to define what uh, an efficient communication could be from the source to the target.
0: So in more laymanish terms, if a message is to go across, it it goes across in fewer or fewest number of words, fewest number of syllables in the smallest uh, span of time. Um, what, what, what does the measure look like? Right, one... so
2: I think the, the measurement is in terms of information recovery, right? Information recovery uh, with minimum amount of um, effort, so to say, right? So you encode certain things in a certain way, which is, uh, which is as minimally descriptive as possible so that it is transferred as faithfully to the receiver. And that is one way to define efficient communication. And consequently, you can talk about what languages can you think of? or What are the properties of the language?
0: So let's bring adaptation here and now. So how, how does that relate to this?
2: Right. So one way to basically think about adaptation or in this context, if you would like to think if languages have evolved or have been selected for effective communication. Then there are theories which would predict that um, that language, the properties of the language, should look in a look like uh, uh, X, Y, Z. So, for example, we know that words on right have certain kinds of properties cross linguistically, right? So, most the more frequent the word is, the shorter it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this famous Zip's sort of law, which basically states this, and this is a very nice um, illustration of the efficiency which is inherent in uh, the languages of the world, right? So, when you articulate something, when you say something, if you're using a word which is very, very frequently used, rather, then they tend to be short, right? So
0: you would, so you would, by extension, say that they are well adapted.
2: Yes, you would, by extension, say that. This uh, property of the language is uh, um, achieving the goal of good communication, which in turn is the uh, the um, the end goal of the adaptation, the function why for which the language basically had evolved. And the is human.
0: there some kind of a similar notion in your world? Is there would you say that smaller species or whatever are better adapted? I don't know. I'm just trying to see whether there's a size correlate that that is uh... yeah,
1: it's interesting first thing I wanted to um, just uh, that came to me when uh, when Samar talked about uh, efficiency of information there is an information theoretic definition of fitness mm. uh, which is basically says uh, is a, there's a subfield I guess and it's never really taken off because it's hard one to measure in reality uh, in the information in an environment and how an, or- an organism processes that information but so the idea mean... is that if you can efficiently process the state of the environment your Fitness is going to be higher, broadly speaking. And uh, that's been a pretty interesting area of, uh, of thought that is still uh, in its infancy. And in terms of size, um, what
0: is difficult to measure? There, you just you, you're not able to delineate all the interactions that happen, and how do you read the? Well, I guess and it's so a
1: on. problem with our understanding of how to understand the cognitive abilities of a spectrum of organisms, from bacteria to elephants, <laughs> which twenty yeah. orders of magnitude, which brings us to size. Right. <laughs> I right. guess uh, so. Yeah, it's a problem with that. You can't necessarily develop a general way to define how an organism perceives the environment, um, and also so when it comes to size, then um, I'm not. I, it's hard to say whether a small uh, relate size naturally to the level of adaptiveness, but we do know that smaller organisms um, have faster generation times. Uh, and therefore, effectively, they have faster mutation rates. Therefore, faster rates of innovation, and therefore, they will adapt faster. And we do, we know that bacterial systems, for example, will cope with changing temperatures much more easily than. Uh, let's say, the upper spectrum of organisms, which also depend on the external temperature of the environment.
0: Just that's simply because their life cycles are shorter and they're able to just try out a wider range of, of uh, solutions. Of solutions yeah. And know. that's
1: why viruses are hard to control. They've got really fast uh, generation times, but also have high mutation rates. So so there is a strong effect of size on your ability to adapt, no doubt about that.
0: Right. So Krishna, now obviously these two worlds are very different. And, you know, you in a way are they represented of human beings and social systems and political systems and so on. Um, is there, is there a specific way in which you would carry the notion of adaptation to the world as you're more familiar with? now does one, now there's host environment, which people like Samrat would be very familiar with. Now, obviously as human beings go around both as individuals and as social groups and so on, you know, there are alien and non-alien environments. Um, What does it mean to adapt in those kind of contexts? And I wouldn't ask you you for a measure, um, but how how does one think of it?
3: Well, one of the first things that struck me as both of you were talking was uh, you were speaking about uh, generalities as in humans, environment, systems, language, etc. I work in politics, and politics is about power. It's about resistance it's about conflict, it's about uh, competition. It's a whole range of things like that. So one of the first things that strikes me about adaptability is to immediately think of which sections of the globe have adapted more successfully than others, and what are the consequences of that as they radiate out of the globe. Uh, It's not a coincidence that Australia has place names like New South Wales, the United States has places like New England. This is the footprint of England across the world. Now, at least to a student of politics, adaptation is a double-edged sword. The tremendous adaptability of a certain group of people from the northwest shelf of the European continent over the last four or five centuries...
0: Has left that imprint all around.
3: Has not only left the imprint all around, we have to remember that... Almost, you know, climate change came very early to the new world, you might say. <laughs> By the early mid-1500s, large sections of the new world were just wiped out because they had no resistance to the diseases that came with. We think of Indian cuisine today as centering around things like, you know, tomatoes and cauliflower, Alu gobi, Alu itself. All of these things came post the discovery of the new world even though we think of some of this stuff as timelessly Indian. So one of the first things I think about when I think about adaptability is whose adaptability, at whose expense, and also the longer term working out of it. I think humans as a species, in fact, have adapted altogether too well to the planet. The they've pond- colonized the planet? As well as uh, are faced imminently with their own extinction in some ways, because um whatever limits there had been on our ability to adapt very successfully to our world in times past, I think disappeared over the last two, three centuries. I think we have sort of unleashed a certain form of commodifying land, commodifying humans, um, and the pursuit of that in that sort of, by the way, traditional societies knew all of this. That's why so much of social custom and ritual and practice was about constraining these desires amongst humans to dominate each other, dominate nature, regard nature as purely a resource to be exploited, etc. And many of those guardrails have just disappeared because we've defined very narrowly what it means to be uh, successful or to have adapted to the environment. So my lens on this is, uh, does over-successful adaptation mean uh, the precise opposite.
0: Are there parallels uh, or uh, in in your world, Samrata? Are, are you able to think of systems where, let's say, just to borrow this template, very roughly speaking, one species over-adaptation or whatever somehow makes the entire system unsustainable and leads to collapse? I mean, you just, it's some kind of a overrun of the system does does that happen because in in a way in in the way uh, krishna has outlined this that is i know he hasn't used the phrase so you should correct me krishna but it feels like a little bit of a 0 something that you know one species victory so to speak is at the expense of the others in some shape and form or at least it's to the detriment of the system overall uh, what does the ecological mind in you have to say to that
1: I was smiling when you were asking me because obviously we know that humans are a biological species. So, yes. <laughs> so we already have that example. Yeah. But moving beyond humans. But beyond them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think one of the big um, points of discussion or controversy in, uh, in uh, I guess, the, the field of eco- adaptation or the study of adaptation has been whether um, systems, complex systems can adapt. And what I mean is, Not just can, can they systems. overcome, Yeah, can, can whole systems adapt, overcoming the selfish needs of single populations? And so uh, we know, and we see this again and again, that there's always situations where single species, uh, because natural selection is myopic, yeah? it's selecting for a particular population to reproduce as best as it can.
0: And does it happen at the level of uh, individual species, groups?
1: So It happens at the level of single, so if you ask Richard Dawkins, it would be at the level of single gene identities or you know, gene groups. That sounds too reductive, gene.
0: no? Huh? Does that not sound too reductive to you?
1: It is too reductive for my liking, because I'm an ecologist and I study complex systems, and like like we were discussing before, you can't define the fitness of an organism without its context, and that context includes other species. And that's also, this again relates back to the point that the fitness landscape is constantly changing. So if you just take an example, let's say in a bacterial system, which a lot of my collaborators work on and for which uh, we do develop a lot of models, uh, you see that in the early stage of uh, a system, let's say we wipe out a system completely, and in an early stage you get a large number of uh, organisms, species, strains, strategies, whatever you want to call them, that are essentially really good at reproducing fast and what you'd call cheating. So they're essentially able to exploit the environment to other species' detriment. Is, and now there's more data, literally in the last five years or so, accumulating that show that these systems again and again move towards greater cooperation as they reach what, what ecologists would call carrying capacity. That is, they've exhausted all the easy resources in the environment. In the case of bacteria, it will be sugar sources. And at that point, uh, cooperation becomes actually almost a necessity. Even there's no general uh, entity, there's no God doing this, but it every population to, to open up new resources, it so happens that bacterial systems will develop strategies that allow them to process low yield substrates. And that leads to cooperation because one, one thing, one organism's poison and another organism's sugar source and uh, or its byproduct is another organism's um, sugar source so cheetahs happen and whenever things move to a new environment and that can happen randomly you can again get the same dynamic. And again and again, you see this game played out where systems, ecosystems evolve in such a way that there is a lot of competition and exploitation at the start. And then there is relatively more cooperation at the end. It sounds all beautiful and and ideological, but it makes sense when you think about the fact that uh, taking away humans, every other organism has to struggle to extract uh, energy out of the environment and use it for its own purposes. So uh, there must
0: be similar notions of cooperation in human systems, right? I mean, theres is, I mean, we're not solo animals after all. We are, um, would you agree? Well,
3: I would agree. Um, there is, within the study of politics and economics, this is like a recurring paradox, as it were, which is, why is there cooperation? in a world supposedly populated by self-interested, utility-maximizing individuals. And the paradox is that, you know, it's often called the tragedy of the commons. You must have heard of that. That it's in each individual's self-interest to exploit a resource to the maximal uh, end for themselves. But if everybody does so, then the resource disappears pretty rapidly. Now... So, so these are
0: just self, uh, self-limiting kind of tendencies at work. Now they should, they should work in almost any kind of system or any kind of dynamic, right? Uh, they should,
3: but if you take right now what's happening with efforts to combat climate change, you get a graphic illustration of the difficulty of overcoming this problem of what's called, you know, collective choice. Right? It's in each nation's self-interest to not slow down its economic development, to not slow down its you know, uh, exploitation of resources because that often entails serious political consequences and other consequences domestically. But if each of them then pursues this policy of trying to free ride on the environmentally responsible efforts of others, uh, you're going to have collectively a catastrophe. So while it seems rational at the level of a species that we need to somehow find solutions that are optimal for the planet as a whole, it's extraordinarily difficult to achieve that. And we are already seeing signs that uh, the more common tendency is for subsections within humans to hive off and solve problems for themselves at the expense of uh, the rest of society. I mean, India is a classic example. I think the upper middle class in India has privatized air. We live in air-conditioned apartments. We've privatized water. We drink just bottled water, certainly not water from the corporation. We've privatized education. None of us goes to public schools or public universities anymore, or at least most of us don't. So in other words... But that these, are, has, these
0: are all, uh, yeah, in a way, these are all adaptive measures.
3: They are, but they are not adaptive at the level uh, of the of species. the system, yeah. yeah they're it's not for, ad- adaptive at the level of the species. It's for the subgroup. It is for a subgroup, yeah. And ethically, there are problems with that. And you uh, can see this even at the level of uh, really all societies. I mean, in the United States, for example... This sounds absurd, but many of the super rich, the Elon Musks, the, uh, you know, the uh, founder of Facebook and all the others are actually in conversation about buying property in New Zealand and creating a kind of, you know, you have all familiar with the book uh, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. This is not just fiction anymore. These guys are all buying adjacent properties and are literally going to sit this crisis out. <laughs> So that, you know, is an example of how the problems so face...
0: way. in a way, given, given the resources that are at their disposal and so on, a subs, subspecies, subgroup or whatever is able to adapt better or is potentially well, able to... That's
3: already the reality. I mean, yeah. you know, between any third and first world border, you have extensive policing to prevent people from crossing over from the third world side into the first world within the First World, for people who have that passport, there is extensive movement within the European Union, within the First World, etc. That's another example of how the problems we face are collective, but the solutions we've come up with are very, very individual or class-based or nationality-based.
0: Now, this is obviously a case of extreme stress or change. Um, Are these the kind of times when speciation events end up happening? Because in a way, this is a kind of subspecies or something, a subgroup popping out of there and is able to figure out strategies, tactics, resources, tools of doing something. Is there something similar that happens in in the world of languages where confronted with, you know, rapid change, a different kind of world and so on, somehow there's an offshoot that takes off, which, which somehow adapts better and there's a debtor left behind.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to sort of, um, I mean, the changes that have been um, observed in the language world I mean I think the
0: question is how do languages change
2: right that's a very complex question actually you know so languages change for a variety of reasons right but how
0: what what happens how do you know that a language is changing what are there there, other other markers are there traits are there symptoms is there a way of saying that something is at work here and a new language is going to pop out of this
2: yeah I mean uh, one obvious uh, thing to look for is the the words themselves, right? So the words themselves start showing um, changes. Uh, an obvious um, example would be a very simple example would be borrowing, right? So you have new vocabulary, new technology, right? Uh, and uh, words are borrowed. So they borrowed from other languages. From other languages or the or the dominant language or whatever you want to call it but as at the level of what is called as um as uh, as grammar or the word order and other kinds of things the the changes are slower right and the reason for that is are they
0: slower or are they very rare they don't happen at all
2: no they do of course we know that they do i mean the typologists and the historical linguists have actually we have sort of um uh, documented these kinds of changes um um, so there are new kinds of grammars coming up every now and then? Yes, sure. But at the same time, I mean, the idea is that you still uh, want to talk about a constrained system, right? And the hope is, or the prediction or the assumption is that, well, the um, the generic uh, cognitive machinery, so to say, is only... Um, um is uh, can only allow certain kinds of grammars right and uh, there are constraints to those grammars both at the level of words or at the level of syntax at the word arrangements and so on the properties of the language and so on so um uh, so in that context you are talking about diversity but you're also talking about a constraint on that diversity right so languages change for a variety of reasons. One, in the term, I mean, coming back to the idea of efficiency and communicative um, um, goals, then in that context, the the proposal out there is that if you have a word order, which is subject, verb, object, SVO, SVO those kinds of languages are more uh, efficient when it comes to information transfer, mm. right? Uh, so what, what would be an example of an SVO language? English would be an example of SVO language, right? Mm-hmm. Where you place the verb before the object. And the idea is that if you assume a information transfer, which assuming a noisy channel, then the recoverability of the, the information, for example, the object, right? Uh, to distinguish between the subject and the object would be easier if you place it in a certain position. As opposed to, um, as opposed to a order where you have SOV, right? So one prediction goes by saying that, well, uh, these languages, right, have have better, are better equipped to encode this kind of information.
0: But do SVO and SOV languages mix often? And in, in that case, what is retained and what is lost? Do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I mean, so the thing is that when languages mix, when languages are born, right? The uh, what what is retained and what is not is you cannot determine that offhand. I think most of the time, what happens is that you um, you um, uh, you retain the the base structure of the language of the community which is adapting. Whereas uh, you uh, you start borrowing the vocabulary, right? Uh, but having said that,
0: what has been so? But that has more to do with the politics of things. I mean, something closer to what Krishna would deal with. It it has nothing to do with the languages per se intrinsically. Yeah, I mean, one hypothesis, one... So you add English with Hindi, right. um, and, and no, obviously English in this I mean, case the Indian is the context, colonizer language. But in but the
2: Indian context, when you talk about English or all these, what you have is that you basically have the structure of Hindi, but you pepper it with English words.
0: So then you just, yeah, so here the loan words are just coming from English. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean... But the
2: grammar continues to be... It is mostly, uh, mostly Hindi, right? So right. that is the case. But I just wanted to sort of finish off what I was saying that while the hypothesis goes that efficient languages have to be SVO, whereas, you know, when you talk about SOV, the information content transfer is slightly more inefficient, but it's still, uh, so this hypothesis is definitely not 100% true because, well, close to 47% of the world's languages are SOV. Yeah, right? and why and they, would that be the case? Why would that be the case? And there are other ways in which you can encode information through. So it is known that when you have a certain kind of word order, which is not fixed, which is, for example, SOV, uh, then the information can be encoded by other means, such as case markers, right? So most of these languages that are spoken in the Indian subcontinent uh, uh, are successful in encoding certain information not based on word order but via these case markers.
0: Right? And something like English would not have case markers. And the
2: English does not have any case markers. So it's new technology. So. And so therefore uh, it will require other means such as fixed word order to encode certain information.
0: Yeah. Krishna, you had something to say.
3: Yeah, I just had a question actually. I know nothing at all about this. So which are some of the most uh, prominent SOV languages in the world?
2: I mean, in the Indian subcontinent, is full of SOV languages.
3: How right? about Chinese? What what sort of a language is that in terms of SVO or SOV? I
2: think Chinese is an SVO language. Okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, basically, uh, the so if you were to actually just count, right, then SOV languages are slightly higher than SVO languages, right? So forty one to percent to forty seven percent. But these two are the most dominant word orders that you find. Uh, in um, in the world, uh, but languages. I mean, word order is just one aspect sure. of how you can categorize languages. Right? There are other kinds of ways people um, categorize languages, but you know, this is obviously a simplification in that sense.
0: Right? And are you able to look at languages and say how old they are and how adapted they are? Just just by. They carry today the structure, the vocabulary, and so on.
2: Um, no, I don't think uh, just by. You mean if, if a trained linguist actually looks at a language, does certain kinds of analysis? Sure. You know there are there are ways in which you can define the 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 age of a language, and uh, uh, how how efficient a language is. That is an open question. I think there are hypotheses out there, but I don't think we have the right answer right now
0: and is there any parallel of this kind of grammar or architecture in your world at all samrat mm. um because here we are literally carving up in the all languages into two and now surely there are others maybe 3 4 5% of the languages are neither sov nor svo and so on so um, um, how does one how does one think of this uh, they're not they're not species. They're, it's just a certain kind of grammar. So the,
1: so the way I uh, this is an in, a very interesting point. Um, language evolution. When you say fitness uh, or adaptation, there's an element of group selection in that argument, which is that more efficient information transfer is good for the group as such. So if it's a tribal group or whatever uh, an entity in space. That is better able to harvest resources compared to another tribal group that outcompete them. That's when evolutionary biologists will be willing to listen to this argument about <laughs> and I'm not an evolutionary biologist, don't get sure. me wrong. I'm an ecologist. So I think these phenomena happen all the time. So an equivalent of that in so in my view, it would be uh, the case that we are talking about multiple species and how efficient is the information transfer between multiple species. And if you're talking about a purely cooperative system, like the one I described before for bacteria, uh, yes, then uh, if, we, if a bacterium can quickly sense when a particular byproduct is available or can sense literally the presence of another population that's going to be beneficial to it, that's how mutualisms evolve. Right. right. So there's a clear parallel when you're talking about pure systems that are simple in the sense that they are all cooperative. But when we talk about more complex systems, then the efficiency of information transfer can work both for and against the stability of the system or its adaptiveness. And we just basically say that predators will overexploit resources if the efficiency of information transfer from the resources to them is good. And uh, and it may, it would not be necessarily positive in a sense of adaptation of the system as a whole.
2: Right, right. I mean, I think one clear sort of uh, assumption when we talk about communication and language and adaptation is that there is this uh, cooperative-ness to to that, uh, where you are in fact trying to build a system where information transfer has to happen, has to happen effectively and so on, right? Which is probably not true for all kinds of systems and frankly in the language context also I and mean, this is an assumption right so i think uh, there could be other scenarios where uh, you know the the language transfer um, the the success of language transfer need not be desired yeah right but but that is different from the question of evolution, right? So in the evolutionary context, in the context of how did it come about, why does it change, and so on. Well, so I think on.
0: the question, Summer, is that, for example, in the case of SOV languages, Hindi, for example, you said there are case markers and other aspects or traits or features like that. Now, do those features make them as efficient as the SVO languages, or somehow, and why hasn't that feature carried on to the SVO languages and why don't some SVO languages have case markers. Is, is 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 it another tool worth having? Yeah, so I think and the You know right, what I mean. I yeah, mean yeah. has this just made it the at the same level as the right, other so sets? It's, it's
2: like it's like I think uh, so I would like to think about it in, in this way, right? So you have a certain goal to uh, to achieve, right? So you want to transfer certain information and you want to encode certain information. You can encode that information either via, let's say, word order, Yeah. right? You place, you fix the position of the subject, you fix the position of the object, right? Uh, Or you don't fix those positions, right? And you mark that information via a device which you call as case, right? So you have floating words, but the, that information is attached to those nouns, they provide that information, right? So, I think there are two different strategies of achieving the same goal. What is more efficient? There are theories out there which say that, well, in certain contexts, under certain assumptions, SVO are more, uh, more, more, more efficient. But I don't think that
0: you cannot make an absolute
2: claim about them being. Absolutely, that efficient is absolutely true. Yeah. Now,
0: now, Krishna, some of these are mechanism kind of questions, obviously, which are uh, at the level of the language. But for example, when two social groups, two cultures meet and so on, are you able to think of those and like how how do those interactions happen? Is there a way of saying when one is able to? Now, obviously, you gave the example of. England going to Australia and US and New South Wales and so on. Is there something about that? Again, if you think of that at the level of black boxes, to the extent you can, I know you're a political scientist. Um, um, Is one able to say why some cultures, social groups are able to go and colonize better, interact better, exploit those resources or environments better? Um, And Maybe one can think of it at the level of mechanics or mechanisms or something else. So is there a way of thinking about that?
3: Well, there are multiple theories about this. Hmm. Um, I'm not particularly wedded to any one of them because, frankly, I think there's a huge amount of chance, uh, accidents, circumstance, etc. that come into it. I mean, to take the classic case... I mean, the East India Company reaches India in the early 1600s. They're absolute supplicants to the Mughal rulers for over 150 years. And then when you look at things as they happen between 1750 and 1790, there's a whole range of things that sort of explosively interact to then convert this company into a colonizing force with devastating consequences for India, as well as... Incredibly enriching consequences for India. I want to emphasize that too. These cultural encounter—I mean, these encounters between different societies, between different races, between different powers—are what produce culture. You know, you can't think of culture as something hereditarily sealed. But but you
0: would you would say that the causes are almost entirely circumstantial. There isn't because it's not like uh, I mean, there there is something about it's not just the case that East India Company succeeded only in India. I mean, there were. They were kind of successful around the world. Now, maybe they figured a technology out, a way of doing it as kind of bureaucracy. I don't know. I, mean, I think Any technology... kind of determinism is tricky. I get that. Right. I get that right. straight from you. But
3: technology how... certainly played a role. If you look at what's happening during those decades in England, it is, you know, the period of the Industrial Revolution. There's also forms of organizing soldiers into certain ways and a whole range of things, you know, technical, social formation. All of those come into play. What I was trying to say was I find... But you
0: you would resist the lens of efficiency and administrative success and power?
3: I wouldn't so much resist it as saying it has its place. There is certainly a lot of evidence that, you know, the British were pioneers, as were the French, actually, in terms of certain strategies of warfare, certain strategies of organizing the ways in which... I mean, there's just a simple thing whereby you, like, array three layers of troops... You know, it takes about a minute to. At that time, it used to take about a minute to shoot off a musket and then reload it. Mm. So if you had three parallel layers of soldiers, yeah, you actually cut. You could like keep a barrage going at 20-second intervals, right? It makes sense, because (laughs) you also arrayed them so that they didn't end up shooting each other. (laughs) The front rows ducked, as it were, as the next wallies went. Now, something as simple as that actually made for a huge difference when the East India Company's forces started conquering India. Uh, Just training Indian sepoys into this kind of a formation made a huge difference. So, It's not just about technology. It's not just about certain kinds of uh, breakthroughs in terms of organizing forces, but they all kind of interact. What I'm trying to resist is the idea that uh, any one variable, you know, preponderates over all the others. We even have to go back in time in the sense that the conquest of the new world sort of sets in motion a whole range of things whose consequences couldn't be anticipated. But post-facto... What do you have in mind? What do you mean? Well, for example, a huge amount of the wealth that came back from the new world energized the rise of a sort of entrepreneurial class within Europe, uh, which then made them uh, sort of move towards a form of organizing production that today we would recognize as capitalism. Um, Within the narratives that I tend to sort of uh, set some faith in or set some store by, uh, that was a complete game changer. Mm. Um, And what was a quantitative difference between... Just like
0: finding a lot of free energy almost. Right, right,
3: exactly. That's why it's often called the primitive accumulation of capital kind of thing. So what was... a a difference of degree became a difference of kind pretty rapidly. Again, with consequences which weren't fully anticipated or could not have been predicted. So um, unlike, I think, uh, your two subjects, which I suspect lend themselves more to certain ways of modeling, certain ways of predicting, uh, certain ways of generalizing, I tend to subscribe more to, uh, you know, the importance of chance, the importance of, uh, let me put it this way. I think in my discipline, we are pretty good at predicting the past, as <laughs> 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 distinct from predicting the future. Where would I mean... you be in
0: this, Now I obviously don't want to take you to political systems. I think you'll be reluctant to do so. Yeah. Um, but, you know. <laughs> that was pretty quick yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how much of this do you think is, is potentially modelable um, these these kinds of uh, social movements and so on because you know uh, again I think it could be it could be knife physics and it could be all plain wrong so but you know I mean I, I think if a colonizer suddenly taps into a whole bunch of free energy somewhere obviously it does something back home and you kind of carry it back and so on. Uh, so there's a temptation and, you know, obviously, uh, wrap me on the knuckles to, to tell us how to think about it.
1: So I think, yeah, what Krishna <laughs> said about being able to predict the past, I think that's quite, It's the kind of sort of thing that uh, people like Jared Diamond, they, I think they oversimplify things when they talk about g- guns, germs, and steel. Yeah. I think the problem, and relating that to what you asked about whether I would consider, uh, you know, it possible to model these kind of systems. So I, broadly, I'm interested in complex systems. I'm fascinated, and that's why I'm really happy to be having this discussion. In particular, is I stay away from uh, systems that have got individuals that take, you know, it complex decisions power. with too much cognition yeah. can be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Which so, is, which is, which and is we much know how power. successful economic modeling has been. It hasn't been very successful because yeah. people are trying to use traditional methods uh, like physics, inherited from physics. Some of them are stochastic to try to model thinking that in human decisions are somewhat like stochastic decisions. Yeah, just many and they're not systems. that either, right? Yeah. They are just strange difficult for us to understand. Maybe we'll get there. So in that sense, yeah, I'm reluctant to, so in my own work, I I think I find it easier for obvious reasons to focus. I've already given examples of bacteria. They don't take irrational decisions. They're (laughs) limited by information and the toolkit they have. And if they have the right toolkit and the information, they will take the thing, the decision that is going to be the most obvious for them. Yeah, the most obvious to us as well. Right. But even when you put together those systems and have lots of players moving at the same time. But even
0: but. even as far as ecological, biological systems go, I think you corrected me a while ago to say that even human beings are yeah. biological yeah. species, yeah. which they kind of are. Um, yeah. Are you able to model um, human beings and their if
1: you if you give me a society that is going to stick with uh, with energy units as their way to to trans to to, you know, to increase no their fitness and not cash, then <laughs> maybe because we can put physical constraints on energy use, but it's really hard to understand. How to model a cash-driven system is, yeah, is my there's, understanding, there's and it's very poor. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there is, and, that, and that's directly having that kind of a system is perfectly compatible, or you know, almost inevitable that is going to go with. It's only possible that we take those kind of cognitively irrational decisions as well. Is why that system works in the first place. This is my broad. Poor I'm, I'm not expert on this at all, but this is the reason why I think it's really hard to envisage how you can model those systems straightforwardly. And yeah, I'm quite clear in my mind because we do try to draw parallels between ecological systems and economic systems and microeconomic dynamics and ecosystem dynamics. On the face of it have some similarities, but we are much more successful at modeling ecosystem dynamics than people have been at, at modeling economic systems. So yeah no i'm not I, I wouldn't say that i would be comfortable trying and I, to let krishna
0: refer to chance which he seems to give some weightage to now would you would you twist that and call uh, twist that or morph that and call it mutation and say that it plays a super important role in your kind of systems and you know eventually when a, when a when a species or an ecosystem has a lot of time then you just yeah. get to explore that much more and that, that's sure. where chance takes over
1: Yeah, I don't want to say that uh, our systems or the ecological systems are more easy. They're not easy in absolute sense, but in a relative sense, because there's no chance. They are Mm -hmm. not deterministic. They are highly non-linear and there's a lot of chance going on. But we do know that the role that chance plays is purely, largely in the realm of generating new innovations. Hmm. Right? How that's but innovations
0: up again after to… Adapt are Mutations,
1: to, yeah. So we're yeah. talking about mutations. It can be a new species entering a system, or it can be a new mutation on a particular population, and uh, you know, introducing a new strategy for that population. In my mind, there is not a big distinction between those two kinds. But could of, there
0: be non-adaptive mutations? Oh, which? they are
1: not, The majority of mutations are, according kind to of classical population genetics theory, are uh, neutral. Or detrimental. Mm. Right. Yeah. In fact, most of them are neutral. Then there's a large number that are detrimental. So when you take a distribution of mutation and mutation effect, you see that a small number are actually beneficial so a detrimental mutation
0: would be something which essentially wipes the species or out or moves you away weaker. from
1: your adaptive peak so to speak and right. that you can imagine is not that uncommon right because if a you know, mutation is a purely random process in that case there is no there is no the, the blind watchmaker right. analogy you know is important here which is that basically uh, it it happens, and it may or may not be good, and there's a high likelihood that it's not going to be good, especially if you're very specifically adapted to a particular environment, which then brings us back full loop to the point that in environments change as well right and in a changing environment, then that is where mutation can be a good thing, and mutation can actually be a very bad thing when you're already close to your fitness.
0: But right? ability to mutate is a necessary thing.
1: Absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, without it, and that's because uh, the environments change.
0: And how important is chance in your world, uh, Samar?
2: Yeah, I think some of the models that I've been talking about, they they are what is called as noisy channel models, mm-hmm. and they're stochastic, and so therefore, chance has a very sort of sort of is part of the modeling itself, right? So when you transfer information. Then, uh, because of a variety of reasons, uh, which is modeled as noise, which could be chance, and right, uh, you could get information loss, right? So, so in that world of uh, conceptualizing information transfer, chance plays a very important role. Mm. But
0: that's simply because the world itself is noisy.
2: Well, noisy is is, in this context is slightly more technical in a sense that when we are talking about, speaking or talking uh, and talking to each other, you just assume that, well, information loss can happen. Right? Mm-hmm. While, for example, by speaking to each other and, right, and or talking over phone and so on. Right? Or just having a conversation. So In that context, uh, you, you assume that there are certain kinds of information loss can, that can happen. Therefore, chance is very much part of that modeling. Right. Um, even in in the but case... is
0: there is there a sister concept of mutation in your world on how how languages change or adapt to um, adapt to the change in the environment or otherwise?
2: Yeah, I think there. I mean, I think there are modeling uh, attempts uh, in the recent past and historically, the typologists have actually looked at these kinds of things, and I think the most successful way of modeling these things have been very simple models at the level of words, right? So where you only look at sound changes and other kinds of things, and it's only recently with computational power and so on that you've been trying to look in other factors, right? Just to sort of uh, echo some of the stuff that Samrat was talking about, right? It's probably very sort of difficult to... It's much more easy to talk about predictions and models for a language in itself and not talk about change and look at the properties of the language uh, uh, and then uh, make certain predictions about what the properties of an ideal language would be if it were to um, subscribe to the notion of uh, communicative efficiency, right? And that's actually when just to talk about the, the, the cons- the limits of adaptability in that sense, right? So you have other kinds of factors which come into the picture, right? Such as the uh, something related to working memory constraints, right? So you have limited. So memory is a constraint. Memory obviously. is a constraint, obviously. So you can be only. You can drive. You can drive at only. You can reach efficiency up to a certain level, right? And then. Mathematically speaking, that system is going to break because of certain other factors which are in play, right? So, uh, uh, so I think uh, talking about uh, adaptability and these kinds of things is, uh, from, a, from, a, from, from a perspective, of a single language becomes easier than bringing in other factors which might lead to changes and so on. All right so go ahead
0: yeah in your world krishna is there a way to say uh, what does not adapt or what adapts the last and so on because there are all kinds of dimensions and layers right there's social political cultural spiritual whatever whatever like when two groups come together or there's a change in the environment in some shape and form what adapts first what adapts last is there a way of uh, thinking of things in those terms at all because, you know, I mean, you, you, you've you thought of diaspora, for example, in some shape and form. Now, you know, big families, groups go from one country to another and so on. And some changes are seem to happen more easily than others and so on. Now, Is there a way of saying what would happen and not happen? Um, or or you, would, you would, again, put that all down to chance and say that? You no, know, no, no, yeah. no,
3: no. I, I don't want to be misread as saying, uh, you know, I'd, I wasn't using chance quite in that way. Okay, let's... I'll give an example. So uh, Americans of Indian origin, meaning South Asian Indian origin, are pretty much the number one uh, ethnic group in the United States in terms of per capita income as well as educational levels. We've even outdistanced everybody else, including, you know, the previous reigning. uh, You mean the Caucasians and others? I mean, I was specifically thinking of the Jews who were a very sort of successful (laughs) minority in terms of both wealth as well as education. South Asian Indians are the number one. And I would often get this sort of very uninformed compliment from people saying, wow, you guys are really brainy or you guys work really hard or whatever. The explanation is very, very simple and social scientific. I mean, in 1965, the United States changed its rules regarding immigration uh, from non-white countries and basically confined it to people who could emigrate to the United States only under certain classifications, which is basically education. So in other words, you've got a very self-selected groups of over-educated middle-class Indians already conversant to the English language, moving to the United States. There is nothing surprising in their succeeding. But. And there's nothing subsiding, surprising in their children succeeding either, Right. So but this, i think one yeah.
0: if, if one thinks of it at the, with the lens of adaptation krishna yeah. of you know obviously this big group when they're 65 onwards or whatever right now there are a whole range of factors you know they had religious beliefs they had cultural beliefs they there's a way in which they conducted their money matters and so on and so forth and the way they dressed what they ate and whole whole range of dimensions mm-hmm. one can think mm-hmm. of and the kind of chain that you see on some axes are different um that they're they variable. They're not all uniform right. and you so I think the question is whether one one can understand something there on what changes and what does not, and or whether different ethnic groups, different country groups have ended up doing it in different ways elsewhere. You mentioned Jews elsewhere and you know, in many ways they're considered to remain orthodox in many ways and you know they, they adapt in very different circumstances, maybe in money matters and economics mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the question. Now, maybe there's nothing meta to be pulled out of this, or maybe there is. That's the question.
3: Well, the meta that I would pull out of it is that this group was already, as I, I deliberately use the phrase conversant in English. Mm. Uh, we were also a society which, because of British colonialism, and then thereafter exposure to American films, American novels, and everything else. I mean, I would put it this way. My move from Chennai to New York was far less of a big change compared to, say, my grandmother's move from rural Tamil Nadu to a Chennai. capital city like Chennai. You know, we tend so to think distance, of these things in terms of distance. but in,
0: And the dimension map was
3: greater. Right, precisely. Hmm. So in that sense... Um, it's not all about chance. It's a
0: niche. It's a yeah. niche that you exploit. Yeah.
3: It's, it's really about my tendency is to look for explanations in these things which are of this nature, right? Instead of seeking it in some set of habits that Hindus have, you know, self, what are these books called? Uh, self-improvement books are full, <laughs> or, you know, the lower sure. varieties of management sure. business school talk are full of this kind of nonsense, whereas the explanations tend to often be very secular. Um, now you find Koreans who are increasingly going to f- international schools in Korea coming to the United States and succeeding spectacularly because some of the things that held them back before, like language, are no longer factors.
0: But when you share languages, you share a lot more. You share
3: a, a bunch
0: of cultural markers, maybe Absolutely. some kind of values Absolutely. And, and so on and so on. And you would... Yeah. Uh, kind of ascribe it to yeah. that.
3: It's Languages transmit ways of being rather than just, uh, you know, communicative nodes of information or noise or things like that. I tend to think of languages as carrying worlds with them, which is why um growing up in the middle-class India that I did, reading all those English novels and all the rest of it left me in some senses um, very inadequately tamil <laughs> <laughs> which is my supposedly my mother tongue and more you know so many of us i think of that generation especially were almost programmed to emigrate i would say you know so in that sense yeah we were adapting to going abroad
0: you were primed for it you were yeah, just, you precisely, were just for it precisely so what does not adapt is there an answer to a question like that
3: as I what said, has but, not changed? Um, I think the world is full of examples of uh, cultures, uh, political units of various sorts that haven't adapted. Um, partly because they've encountered others who were far more adaptable to the environments and in, in a sense were out So then that's a loss
0: and a competition.
3: Yeah you used the phrase zero sum before i wouldn't reg- i would not regard my understanding of this as zero sum sure um because we've also seen certain aspects of this culture getting completely internalized by others which were seen earlier on as alien to it so capitalism is thriving in east asia capitalism is thriving in a communist authoritarian society like china yeah so yes these are you know these are things that often can be adapted to even more successfully than in the original, uh, as has happened quite often in the 20th century with Japan outcompeting um, the so-called Western countries in certain areas, and then now Japan being outcompeted by. So there is a process of learning, a process of adapting. I wanna just go back to something I said earlier, which is when it comes to human beings and environments, Adaptation is a double-edged sword. The more successfully you adapt to a certain niche, uh, maybe the less successful you are in changing from it when crisis hits. Um, Maybe your very successful adaptation comes at the cost of others and their ecosystems and environments. And I really think... uh, We humans have adapted ourselves almost out of the business at the current point. (laughs) And we have to find some way of maybe adapting less well and giving nature its due um, and constraining our uh, desires, consumption, and desire to dominate as distinct from living with the ecosystem. I don't know. I, I, I think I'm beginning to sound a little... No, I think it Preaching. makes sense. <laughs> Maybe it, it makes sense, <laughs> no, but it, it sounds like an ethical plea. Which, it which, is
0: an ethical plea, absolutely, and, and which is which is kind of fine. I think human beings are ethical beings as well. Um, I think one just wonders how it would happen. I, 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 I guess the realization is is a good first step. Right. Um, nothing can happen without that because these are. Whether you're able to model it or not, these are very large systems. There are
3: societies which have achieved a certain degree of success. I mean, you know, if you look at the Scandinavian societies, many of them have, in a sense, struck a balance between.
0: They're less messy.
3: They are. They have a few advantages. I will yeah. grant you that. You know, they've strictly controlled immigration for one yeah, thing. Yeah, they're less
0: messy. They're so. less
3: messy, but at least it shows that in certain kinds of circumstances, you can have a mix of a market society with social welfareist programs that um, construct a safety net for the large majority of people. Not all. They have problems with alcoholism. They have problems with. Yeah, there are very different
0: kinds of economies as well. But, but at least, continue. you
3: know, I'm sort of clutching at straws at some level, but at least they are proof that there is a better way of ordering things than uh, many others. It's That's a possibility. So, and Maybe yeah,
0: there's something yeah. to be learned from. Right. What does not adapt, uh, Samrat? Is there is there is there a way of how does one think of the limit question? I think one understands the resources and, you know, you, you do what you can. There may be mutation every once in a while, there's species, there's ecosystems and so on. But
1: I think something very similar to what Krishna talked about, which is, um, cornering yourself into a, no, a, a very specific niche, um, those are the species we know notoriously uh, are at greatest risk of But wouldn't extinction. you say
0: that human beings inhabit a very wide variety of niches and ecosystems? Oh, no, I wasn't
1: talking about humans at all, but you're okay. saying the same thing. <laughs> maybe there are subgroups of humans. Maybe that's what Krishna was referring to, that there are groups, and maybe there's element of kin selection and group formation there. You know, whatever, Parsis or, or certain groups that have formed strategies that are successful in a particular period. Right. And uh, they are not. I wouldn't say they are, they cannot adapt, but they not, may not be that adaptable when the environment changes at a f- faster rate than than their toolbox allows them to to keep up with. As in the mutation rates of innovation, and I don't mean literal mutation rates in the case of humans, but in the case of animals, it has to be literal. Mutation rates, and uh, there is uh, so large organisms don't adapt, and we we are back to the point that I made before: is elephants are at greatest risk of extinction because they're large the organisms. The larger you are,
0: the more the more risk things are. Yeah,
1: and I think conservation biologists have a kind of been so focused on specific species, but there are general scaling laws uh, that everybody recognizes that if you want to put all species on a spectrum of extinction risk, you can use size. And the largest things tend mm. to be the organisms also that have developed strategies to exploit the environment in a repeatable way. And the re- and it's a necessity more than anything else because larger organisms have a slower rate of energy use per unit mass as well, which is called, which is basically a scaling law. Basically, elephants use energy at a slower rate per unit mass than mice do, and for that reason, for them to be able to reliably uh, process their energy and produce offspring, they need a relatively stable environment. A part of this is my view, but I think the so, formalizing So, the larger
0: a species is, the higher the risk of extinction.
1: And is which that, is obvious, is, which is very much the case now. All the It's more not ex- by empirical yeah, facts. Yeah. And uh, there are lots of small species that, that that do go extinct, but it turns out that very often there are uh, let's again go back all the other uh, to the other end of the spectrum to bacteria again. Everything is everywhere is one of the things that people talk about when it it comes to bacteria. They seem to be able to there always seems to be latent variation available for them to occupy an empty niche and so so, to answer your question about what doesn't adapt? Well, I think everything has to adapt, but there's something that can fail to adapt to a certain rate of change of the environment.
0: And sometimes success is a good predictor of subsequent failure.
1: Yeah, (laughs) pretty much, yeah. So you can (laughs) corner yourself or back yourself into a
0: a
2: secure What does not
0: adapt, summer? in in your context?
2: Yeah, so one of the things that uh, I think I've been talking about repeatedly now is uh, optimization, efficiency, and so on. And I think what we know is that there are other factors uh, which is, I mean, just sticking to cognitive constraints uh, such as working memory, right? That has a counter, if a sort of a, um, effect on how much efficiency you can achieve, right? So, but for
0: example, I mean, there may or may not be any parallels, but are there cases that? Languages that have kind of gone extinct. Now, obviously, they kind of go extinct for all kinds of political, yeah, so, social reasons. Right. Uh, so, no,
2: I'm, I'm, just, I'll give you a sort of an example, uh, which is often used. There's this very complicated sentence in English. I mean, you can, and this right. So, the the rat, the cat, the dog chased, killed, ate the malt. Right. And this is a pretty complex sentence. And if if I were to actually restate this sentence, right, or rather this. Say the rat, the cat, the dog chased, ate the malt. And if I were to ask you which of those two sentences were grammatical, right, you would most likely say the second one was easier, right? And, right, but the fact is the second one is an, is an ungrammatical sentence, right? The first one was a grammatical sentence. Now, what people have found is that if you were to do the same thing in German, people don't get tricked, right, into believing that the ungrammatical sentence was actually grammatical. Right. And the idea there was, is that because you end up seeing so many uh, were final structures in German, you've just gotten better at it, right? Mm. Repeatedly seeing set adapted to those mm. kinds of structures. Adapted to the use of it. The use of it, right? To sort of become very efficient in handling those kinds of structures. But what we have been finding is that, well, um, um, my lab is that, well, there is a limit to those kinds of, uh, adaptability and the fact is that you, um, you working memory constraints and other kinds of pressures, right, will end up making these kinds of structures non-comprehensible even in a language like we didn't work on German, but in Hindi, which is sort of which has a similar structure, that the system is going to crash mm-hmm. basically.
0: And yes. unlike unlike the example that we were thinking about a little earlier, there's no such thing like cash. So the, these constraints are real because you know you need to obviously do the cognitive processing yourself. Yes, exactly. So um, yeah. So the constraints remain constraints, and the constraints at the level of the individual. Are, precisely. So are sometimes uh, they constrained at the level of the language.
2: Yes, exactly. So you you could actually talk about it in terms of the species level, sort of um, con- sort of universal, so to say, right? Well, these are the kinds of things you can do, but if you cross this boundary, because you've evolved in a certain way, you just cannot do it. Right. So, uh, so in terms of efficiency, uh, uh, the definition of efficiency, the ideal notion of efficiency that that could be achieved is just in a way is not possible because of there are other factors which sort of, uh, play a role in uh, determining, um, how how you go about comprehending things. So
0: right? why don't we end with this summer? What What is the future, the long-term future? Um, and I know you're a linguist, so you probably won't think, will not think of the other aspects, but, you know, there's this forty one forty seven split or whatever between right. these two kind of languages. Right. Now, as you iterate this forward several centuries, do you think that, um, you know, one kind of language or whatever, or one language itself could, 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 could end up having a lion's share of,
2: uh, Very difficult of the for spy. Me. Very difficult for me to actually give you that answer <laughs> right away, but well, <laughs> if you were to actually believe some of the theories which have been kind of quite successful in modeling some of the aspects, then you might want to actually say that maybe there is a transition towards a certain kind of word order, which is SVO, but as I said, um, um, this is an open question and there are gaps in terms of what these theories actually go about predicting what they have not been able to model and so on so i it's an op, really an open question what's the
0: future samrat are you able to what are you able to see
2: we are all going to die <laughs>
0: that doesn't I mean, take Krishna any predicting also with that,
3: <laughs> that even Krishna can predict. <laughs> remember i can only predict the past <laughs> that's the
0: one thing you can predict about the future
3: hmm.
1: Well, um, I guess I worry about uh, what we call ecosystem functioning and the you know the rate of you know, warming and the feedback effects in the biosphere. So clearly, we are in a very uncomfortable place, and uh, and things have a limit to how well they can adapt to warming or whatever. Because that's one of are the things are there. Yes, there are pretty so strong. And so you're limits. referring to
0: temperature. Yeah. So temperature is a and now um, Summer spoke about this in the context of working memory. Yeah. As far as biological systems go, you think temperature is a certain kind of uh, very specific kind of constraint.
1: It's at... a constraint, where, because uh, adaptation to changing temperature is it's not it's not easy for organisms to adapt to that kind of change, and when lots of organisms are doing it, and like I said, some large organisms, let's say, just to again repeat, somewhat of a simplification of this complexity of the problem. Um, are going to be slower at doing that, so we are looking at a massively potentially modified biosphere in that sense. With certain strategies, successful you mean,
0: um, several centuries and whatever hundreds or yeah, hundreds of thousands of years. And out. yeah,
1: and what the what it has, what effects it has in terms of feedbacks, and how how we sustain this, uh, you know, the uh, living breathing environment. And so uh, even if human question. beings survive, we're going to be shorter? And, 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 <laughs> um, actually, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if humans will be shorter. Um, they might be less greedier. I don't know.
0: <laughs> What's the future, Krishna? Where, where is this headed?
3: Well, when it comes to humans, I'm pretty pessimistic, quite honestly.
0: There'll be no political science remaining if there's no oh, human beings. That might
3: be one of the few good, up, uh, <laughs> outcomes. <laughs> a few good outcomes out of this. But seriously, I keep reminding myself and others that uh, this is a crisis for us humans as a species. It's not a crisis of the planet. That distinction is important to maintain. The planet would going you to...
0: would you would you agree with that? Is this a crisis only for the human beings? Because there must be all kinds of ecosystem collapses and so on that are afoot now. Well, I
3: have greater faith in their ability to adapt to whatever is happening, whether right. it's coral reefs in warmer waters, whether it's uh, you know, bacteria, whatever. I have a feeling that um, we humans are probably uh, looking at some very difficult times ahead. And from what little I've seen of our responses to the very clear evidence of climate change, doesn't produce much faith in me. In fact, most of the leading countries in the world are running full speed in the opposite direction that they should be. There must uh, be
0: something in the political scientist kit that that works, no?
3: Um,
0: this is eventually a persuasion exercise or it's, it's, a, it's a collective action problem.
3: Well, I, I really do think if you're looking to political scientists for solutions on Pretty much anything, you're in deep trouble.
0: <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> and or any academic subfield. I mean, I don't want to just single political science out. This is really,
0: but this is a classical, uh, which is not to put us at the doorstep of a of a discipline, but it's a political action problem.
3: Yeah, at one level, for sure, it is. Um, it's about persuasion. It's about uh, working together. To, you know, to, for a problem that does collectively affect us all. But as I've said, whatever solutions that have already been attempted. put in attempted so far have been very, very sectarian. To use that word, have been very specific to a certain in-group at the expense of large numbers of out-groups. Just I'm
0: make friends with some people and ship to New Zealand.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that. That, that, that's a typical uh, solution, right, at the individual level. Yeah, just, How do I bail out of Just think of this? yourself,
0: uh, call up your wife. Yeah.
3: Which is, yeah,
0: yeah. Terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thanks for coming. Thank
3: you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.